When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Santi Gold and you're listening to The Fader Uncovered with Mark Ronson. Okay. Hey! Hey! <laughs> Today I'm talking with my dear friend, actually one of my favorite people in the universe, Santi White. Santi is a true iconoclast best known as the musical visionary behind Santi Gold. She appeared on the cover of Fader issue 51 at the beginning of 2008, just before the release of her debut album, Santo Gold. And in true Fader cover star fashion, she could not have been any hotter at that moment. Although it was her first album, it felt as if she had dropped down to earth a fully formed genre-spanning superstar. I mean, where had she come from? How could someone envelop all the most exciting parts of electronic music, punk, new wave, reggae, in this effortless way, write these amazing melodies, and then make it seem like she hardly batted an eyelid while doing it? She seemed the embodiment of the term future music and the epitome of cool. Well, like most quote-unquote overnight sensations, her arrival was a long time in the making. I discovered her nearly a decade before through the brilliant songs she had written for the artist Reese, penning most of Reese's debut album. And although the record didn't quite hit, songs like They Say Vision fully hold up, and you can hear the birth of Santi's inimitable style. Bratty but catchy vocals, very clever, personal but eccentric lyrics, and traces of indie ska and trip-hop. Next up, Santi channeled her love for all things Bad Brains through her rock band Stift cutting her teeth in punk clubs all over the country. But frustrated and hitting somewhat of a wall, mainly because most record labels were unable to envision a black woman fronting a punk rock band, she sort of just said, fuck it. If I'm not going to make it, I may as well just make interesting music that I love. And then something magic happened. Call it the power of surrender, divine intervention, the luck of a chance meeting with Diplo and Switch in a nightclub, but she started to make music that was exciting to her and sounded like very little that came before it. I was actually a big fan of Stift and went to a lot of their shows, but when I first heard Creator off of her upcoming debut solo record, I was gobsmacked. My friend had made something that was so inventive and new, I had no reference point for it. It felt like a new chapter in music, and it wasn't just me. The acclaim came pouring in. Suddenly, Jay-Z, David Byrne, M.I.A., they were all at the show's side stage. Jay even tagging her for the Kanye-produced Brooklyn We Go Hard. Santi and I have been great friends for nearly 20 years, and it was amazing to watch her rise. One minute, she's watching my dog while I'm heading off to England to play my early shows, and the next, she's headlining over me at Lollapalooza. 
I was so excited for this chat, mainly because she's one of the smartest, most interesting people I know. Plus, her unique combination of world weariness, yet boundless enthusiasm, is so infectious. So here it is, Santi White, or Santi Gold, on The Fader Uncovered, with me, Mark Ronson. Let's get deep. Hi. How about this? That's really good. Now I'm hearing I, yeah. breathing from running. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Your fader cover, 2008. The fader has a pretty good batting average of putting people on the cover right at that moment. That it's like so much hype. And then usually those people really go on to become really important artists. Because it's always a gamble when you're going on someone that just like feels like the next big thing. But I would have to say their, their batting average is, is pretty strong. And if I had to really sum up your rise at that point i think i even said it to somebody i think i was like well like i mean last year i remember i was dropping my dog at our house on the way to the airport and now she's headlining over me at festivals and on the cover of the fader it's like literally what i would tell people when you hit that <laughs> because just to go back a second obviously you're always making music and had a successful career as a songwriter but you were doing me a solid because I was going to UK to do those shows and I was dropping my dog. You would very kindly look after. And then in a year or so, you were just on top of the world. So what do you remember most about the chaos of that time? The album was about to come out, just like all these laudits, acclaim, excitement. You know, when, I don't know, it's just such a special moment when like the universe just aligns and allows you to like pop through something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of a whirlwind. And so you don't really remember the details. No. You know? And so I just remember, like you said, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time prior to that in different ways, different capacities, different angles. And I remember you know, I had my band stiff for a while and we was trying to make this music that wasn't black music enough, you know, and nobody was really ready or interested. I was a true stiff devotee. I, I, I came to your shows, those <laughs> hardcore shows, I, you know, drag friends and they'd always be like, they're fucking amazing. And I liked the EP and you would play, where was it, like Continental Divide or CBs, all the yeah, downtown New York, I don't know. Yeah. I remember when we set out to make the Santi Gold record, which is kind of like stiff, kind of broke up and we just... Me and John Hill were like, let's do just whatever we want, you know? And I'd had this like psychic reading before. And she was like, well, you know, you're going to get where you want to get to, but it's going to take longer because you just got to just let go of wanting to get to a certain place and just make music for the sake of making music. Right. And what year was that around? That was probably like 2003. Okay. You know? And so by the time we got around to making the first Santi Gold record, I really didn't think anybody would be interested or getting it because I knew that I wanted to do every influence I had and like, yeah. and I didn't really care. I remember saying to John, I was like, maybe somebody in London will like it. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. They did. But so did people I, everywhere, I right? Know, I just thought that London was like more open to yeah. different things that didn't fit into genres, you know? Yeah. I had gone into it not really expecting anything. And so when things just started opening up to me kind of in, for the first time in that way, it was so exciting and so overwhelming, too, because it was such a busy time. You get the sense of that in that article. It's like the chaos. And I'm even surprised and quite pleased to hear you say there's these wonderful moments in the universe where things align and allow yourself to pop through. Because I almost see you sometimes being so 
hard on yourself and so caught up in the chaos that you, I didn't even know that you take a moment to acknowledge like something really good happened. But in that article, you really get the sense you're like, I haven't changed in, I haven't done laundry. I'm down to my last pair of corny underwear. <laughs> Did I say that? Uh, yeah, you say That's it. You're awesome. like, you bring people into your apartment. And I remember that apartment in the brownstone in Bedstone, yeah, right? Yeah. And I could just picture the mess that it was. What, what do you remember about? About the that? shoot? Just about that time, oh. like such a cliche, but I feel like there's so much work and history that goes into looking like an overnight sensation, which is essentially what it probably looked like to the outside. When was the first thing that happened that you were really like, oh shit, things are finally clicking into place for me? Oh, it's an interesting question because I have a tendency to not key in to things like that. I just kind of go and go and go. And I'm working on this actually yeah. because I sort of like go through my life sometimes in front of myself rather than like embodying the present. Yes. And I think back then I was certainly like a little bit just running on adrenaline ahead of myself. I was on tour for two years straight yeah. during that time. I used to lose my voice all the time. I didn't know how to regulate. I didn't know how to set up boundaries to like take care of that and not do everything that was asked of me and stuff like that. Also, there's something that happens when you've been like hustling for so long and then suddenly like people get it and you're just like, you're so grateful to have it. Like I had it similar to you later in life in my 30s. So like you don't know the rules and you do say yes to everything. You are willing to just be like, what? You need me to like fly from Switzerland to totally. like Perth, Australia tomorrow? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Also, it's exciting because you meet so many people. That's one of the good things about you know, when things start happening and, and you're like playing festivals and you're doing press, like we met doing a photo shoot in 2002, maybe. What was that? I always try to remember how we very it first was, met. It was, I think, Mark, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I met you doing a stiff photo shoot. A stiff photo shoot? Because I can't I so. remember a time that we weren't friends. No, That's I know. And I have this memory of like, I had my hair in cornrows. And I had on this like Adidas jacket and we're sitting on a stoop somewhere. I remember the stoop. Remember? Now. Yeah. I remember that. That was that was like afterwards. So what was I doing in a stiff in your you, band? No, 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 no. It was a bunch of different bands for a magazine and okay. you were in it and I was in it. I think, Mark. Yeah. I think that, that's how we met. And so at that time too, it's like you're meeting all these different cool art. I mean, that was way before. Yeah. But you start meeting all these people who are like-minded and and honestly, so I was like 31, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. <Thank> um, <laughs> but um, the thing is... For my life up until then, I had not really found my tribe, yeah. you know, because I was always so other, yeah. like in every different situation, because I'm a little bit of a lot of things, you yeah. know, and so I fit in many places, but never the whole of me mm -hmm. until around then. But that's because I think that's when culture started to open up to allow a black woman to be more than just this or that. And so it was like people started coming out of the woodwork as all these other people that didn't fit in the box and sort of like we kind of found each other. And that was that was actually one of the most special things about that time. And I think it wasn't just the time where I'm starting to come out, but I think it was culturally the time. You know, we had Obama that year. We had fashion was just going crazy that year. Music was going crazy. It was like a real moment culturally. And I think that's what was one of the most exciting things is feeling the freedom to actually embody all the things that you always wanted to and nobody was ever willing to hear yeah you or feel all at the same yeah. time i mean you're such a good 
arbiter of culture, even if it's just instinctually, like you're not chasing trends, but you just seem to like embody or people look to you. But so I'm more of the person like when you talk about all the influences and all the different things in one, my brain goes to music. So to talk about your first record, you took all these disparate influences that you had, or maybe not so disparate of the punk, bad brains, all the more guitar music that you were doing. And then you talk about it in the article a little bit. It was a little bit of an eye opener. Like you'd always like hip hop. So you had always been down with electronic music, but not so much like house and the, and the worlds that Switch and Diplo came from. So can you just revisit how you kind of hooked up with them and ended up doing the more electronic side of that record? Yeah, <laughs> this is a funny story. So I met Diplo the same night I met Switch at some party that I went to at Spankrock. It was like 30 people there. It was really nobody there and somebody was DJing and it was like kind of empty. And I had met Diplo just briefly at like Joe's pub or something years before I was in Stift. And like, we didn't really know each other. Right. He, he might have come to a show, like we didn't know each other like that. And so I was sitting on this like bench next to Naeem and then Naeem got up and then Diplo like slides in and he's like... Naeem is Spankrock, by the way, just for our listeners. Yes. <laughs> and so he slides up and he's like, do you have any lip gloss I can borrow? <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is that his line? I don't know. Diplo? But that was it, yeah. And so I actually had a chapstick. I used to use like cherry chapstick. And I, I'm the biggest germaphobe in the world, but I was like, I like wanted to like give him it. So yeah. I was like, sure. And I gave it to him and then I like took it back and like threw it away immediately, you know? So that was that. And then like five minutes later, which is how he is, he's then the connector who we already know each other. Yeah. So he, here, I want you to meet somebody. And he brings me over to Switch, who was in town trying to make a Baltimore bass record with some girl rapper. Yeah. So he brings me over and he's like, you guys have to work together. And then he's like, do you rap? And I was like, sure. And he's <laughs> like, can you do Baltimore bass rap? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, you probably hadn't rapped since like the high school talent show no, that we've I mean, talked about a couple of times. Not we'll really. No, I right. mean, I've always written like, I don't know. But I know I certainly wasn't like rapping, yeah. you know. Did you just sense that this felt like a good opportunity? Were you just like in a silly, playful mood? Like, yeah, just, whatever. I like, mean, sure, I can rap. I knew what he had worked on before. Okay. And what had he worked on? I mean, Was I, it MIA? It, it was MIA. Okay. But I didn't know like the details right. of what he did. But I think that's what Diplo framed it. Like, you just knew he was interesting. He probably might have some cool shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we go to this, like he had rented one of those rooms, the little sound rooms, yeah. like a box, Yeah. you know? And I went there that week. And they played the beat for Creator, and it was like nothing that I ever wow. heard. And I just was like, I loved it, but I had no idea what to do on it. Like, yeah. it just, so he's like, go ahead. And I was like, right now? Cause like, what I like to do is take a beat home and just like, especially back then, cause I was yeah. super shy. If I didn't know people, I didn't feel free to like sound terrible. Yeah. And so I literally went in the booth and I go, can I take this home? <laughs> Oh and my then goodness. They're like, okay. And then I planned on never going back. Cause I yeah. like, I listened to, I was like, I don't know how to write this yeah. crazy beat, you know? So they kept calling me and he kept being like, we're leaving soon. Can you please come back and finish? Like, we right. really want to do it. And I was like, all right. So that night, I think I had like, do you remember the Roland, um, 
is it called like a VS80 or something like that? It was this weird, almost like a multi-track recorder. I think so, like a digital multi-track yeah, recorder. Digital multi- yeah, I was just messing around and I kind of wrote Creator, but I had no confidence in it. And I just was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but that's what I wrote. Yeah. But I didn't really have a, a melody, right? I just kind of had all the words and the flow. And I went in and I felt so not confident. And I think at this point we were at the studio that I was working at near Williamsburg. Okay. And um, they were like, okay. And I was like, I got something, I don't know. And I, I was like, I just can't figure out a melody. And they were like, well, let's just put in a melody and we'll take it out. So I think they put like the police in the background, okay. or something like that. And I started and I just was like, and they fucking flipped out. He's like, oh stand God. up, doing the finger thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just like, and I fed off of uh, their energy and it ended up being this amazing moment. It was Switch and this guy, Freak Nasty, yeah. who he had just barely met up with yeah. as well. And it was really great and it was really fun. And so I had this record. Fair play to Switch for a ha- like keeping bugging you, like having a sense, even yeah. if it was just a sixth sense that like you on that track was going to be something special. I know, and he didn't even know me. Like yeah. he didn't know anything about yeah. me. Yeah, so he did, and it was like amazing. And then, so I had this song that didn't fit my record. I was like, but I like this song, you know, because John Hill and I were doing like, we did LES and we had like Say Aha, or not Say Aha, we hadn't done that yet. Lights Out. Lights Out, yeah. Yeah. And so we had these sort of like the other side. So then I started doing something that ended up sort of making the brand of what Santi Gold became was like figuring out how to merge all the elements Mm -hmm. and, and being like this weird, patchwork builder and so and what was that was that by making the rock songs a little bit more electronic in the mix yeah i just started pulling i mean i left some as they were like i don't think les and uh and lights out i touched really but but i started building other songs like say aha we ended up pulling in disco d at the time to work on that and then we should talk about disco d because He's really, really influential. A lot of huge producers and people like, I mean, Benny Blanco, like people have gone on to become like lords of pop, all point back to Disco D. I don't know that much about him. Can you tell a little bit? Just shed a little light on I him? I mean, I'm one of those people, I never know much about anybody. I just stumble into people. Yeah. But I met him. He was like the nemesis and like arch rival of Diplo okay. at the time. And what city was Disco D was in Baltimore? Or no, he was, he? He was, he was living in, in Brooklyn when I met oh, him. Oh, he was. Okay. But I know he spent a lot of time in the Brazil, Bali, funk world, and so did Wes. Oh, okay. And so they were like, you know? Yeah. So he had a real cool sense of that whole, that was very up and coming at the time, the whole like Bali funk mixing sort of like African influenced stuff with electronic music. Yeah. So with the sort of African and reggae elements of Say Aha, I was trying to make it, was it Say Aha? I think I'm it sorry, was it was it. Shove It. Shove yes, it, it was yeah. Shove It, it was Shove It. And that was really interesting because I was trying to do something that was like rap, but I didn't want it to feel like a rap song. Mm-hmm. In fact, I so much didn't want it to feel like a rap song that I put a completely other voice and tucked it underneath that no one was supposed to hear. Right. Which was kind of like British. <laughs> Wait, is that in the song? I'm trying to remember that. Well, you can't hear it in, okay. the, in the mix. Okay. But I, I didn't want it to sound like a Philly girl. I wanted okay. it to just sound like Tom Tom Club. Okay. So, you know, we think you're a joke. That's that song, right? Yeah. We think you're a joke. You know, so I, I didn't want it to sound like, you know, we think you're like how I would yeah, say yeah, 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 So yeah. I was like very straight in oh, my yeah. delivery. We think you're a joke. Shove your hope. Yeah. But I, I put this like underlying thing so then when Kanye Diplo sent the uh tracks to Kanye without telling me for the Jay-Z song Brooklyn we go hard Brooklyn we go hard and he takes out the English one 
the English right. that was like tucked in. Yeah. So it was like Brooklyn, we go hot. <laughs> like, That's what that is. That's yes. from the thing he found like the 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 hidden yes. stems. Yes. And it was like, oh no. But it was really funny. So it's, that's that's yeah. It's funny because like actually now to hear you say it, it does make sense because you're going, We think you're a joke. Like it is kind of enunciated. It almost reminds me like in the Motown era when they would die in a Ross, they'd be like don't just sing like you're in church, like sing proper, enunciate everywhere. There was like a style of doing that. Because that is important. Like that little detail makes it a whole different sounding song. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like what they were doing in Motown, it sounded completely different. It didn't sound like church music. It sounded like a new yeah. genre. And it's like singing like the Tom Tom Club on a beat like Shove It was a completely yeah. different idea. It's funny though, because now when I think about that's so you that you think you're a joke, like that just sounds so much like Santi Gold that like it's impossible to think that you were like fixing yourself to sound like that. That's wild to me. So when you gave it to Disco D? Yeah, so he came in and he basically came in and did a lot of the beat stuff on that song for us. And what had he done before? I know he was like known for stuff. Was it mainly like the B-more and the Bali funk He stuff? did that. He did some rap stuff. I remember he had me come and sing on some song. I don't even remember. I have to ask Trevor because he remembers because it was some really like random rapper. And I sang some super R&B thing on something because I mean he did stuff yeah. like that too. Yeah. But yeah, he died like super. Yeah terribly early yeah and right in the height of everything it's funny when i speak to singers because i like when i'm working with a singer in the middle of the record they'll be like i don't know because i got this song that sounds like this and this song that sounds like that but i think singers always forget especially if you have a really unique special voice that your voice is always a unifying instrument so like as much as it was really groundbreaking because no one had put together maybe those influences the way you did on the first record. I don't hear them being especially different. Like I don't hear like Elias Artis into Shove It into Creator doesn't strike me as being kind of odd because your voice is such the dominant color that it doesn't. But did it feel odd to you or were you just so happy to be liberated and doing just whatever the fuck you wanted? I agree with you. I identified my voice as the unifying thing and in that, I felt totally free to do anything I wanted to do because I was like, it sounds like me. And also within one song, I was singing like four different voices. Yeah. So I was like, this is what it is. But the main thing is when I say that it has to fit, it's exactly like when you do a painting and you've got a little bit of like, say you have red up here. You can't just have only red up there. It's got to be a little touch here and a little hint of orange or something to just draw your eye around the whole painting. And it's the same thing when you're making a record. You just have to have balance. Yeah. You know, and so that's what I was focused on. I wasn't like, OK, you know, when you're curating a project, it has to tie together. That's mm -hmm. all. It doesn't have to be the same. It, something can totally stick out, but it just has to make sense within the whole context. Yes. Sometimes I do think, like, do my socks bring out the color of this tie? I know that sounds really Mark, ridiculous, I know you're thinking, but that's... I thought you were trying to pretend you were joking, and I was no. like, Mark, you know you were 100% serious. No, I am 100% serious. I haven't done it in a while, but... Like most meaningful debuts, Santo Gold sounded like nothing that preceded it. It had a lot of influences, sure, but all those influences were digested through Santi's wildly unique filter. Devo, Bad Brains, 80s Philly hip-hop like Schooly D, etc. I mean, in the age of Spotify and YouTube, those influences don't sound as disparate because now you can find countless great playlists that curate across decade and genre. But back in the early 2000s, this was certainly not the norm. 
The main reason Santi gave herself the freedom to experiment in all these areas was because she had resigned herself to the fact that her time might have passed and she wasn't going to make it, so she might as well make what was exciting to her. And I can completely relate to this. In 2005, I was cold as cold could be. My debut album, Here Comes the Fuzz, had bombed, causing Electra to drop me like a scalding, hot, mold-encrusted potato, and I had no other projects going on. So I started using my free time to just make covers of songs I adored, songs by Radiohead, The Smiths, and The Jam. I loved the music of these bands, but there was no chance to play them in the hip-hop and R&B clubs I DJed at, so I thought I'd redo them in a style that I could get away with in my DJ sets. I never imagined there would be interest in this music beyond the club. I never expected any label to want to put this out. And that music became the album version. It's still my most successful to date with over a million copies sold. When you're not thinking of the pop charts, you're free to create in this unfiltered way. It's like accessing the direct creative cortex of the brain without all the negative self-talk that goes, yeah, 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 but no one's going to fuck with this. This freedom enabled the album Santo Gold to be the mix that it is. The Pixies, The Waitresses, Sister Nancy, grimy East London club beats and all, and the main glue was Santi's unmistakable vocals. She could be as brash and badgering as she wanted on tracks like Creator, and then syrupy indie sweet on Earworms like Lights Out, or a mixture of both on bangers like L.E.S. Artiste. By exploring these different voices and soundscapes, the music benefited from her freedom of thought and her distinct sound was born. I remember also what was so cool, you had these like gnarly records that, you know, the kind of more like beat heavy ones that would just be playing in like grotty underground clubs. And then I would go to like Urban Outfitters, Topshop, everyone, you would just hear L.E.S. Artiste like in every store. Like it was kind of amazing because you really did have this reach. And I don't think it was like splitting an audience, but you covered all this ground. Were you aware that like looking out at your shows for the first time that you could almost look at a fan and be like, oh, I know what song they like, what they're here for? Did it feel like the audience was just there for you or... It was just such a cool audience because it was so mixed up. And, mm -hmm. and I was shocked, honestly. I mean, there was a lot of like 50-year-old white men in my audience who really liked the sort of new wave stuff, yeah. I think. I mean, there was just everybody. In some cities, there were no black people. Right. And I didn't like that. There began to be more and it became really mixed up. But like in the beginning, when it was very indie, mm -hmm. you know, I don't really know what India is anymore, but right. like it changed. My audience yeah. changed and it just means you're not on hip hop or R&B radio or playlists. It's just anything that's like slightly uncategorizable, right? Now, I think it means that. Right. But before it was like hipster. Yeah. That's kind of different now. Of course. You know? A lot of people listening to this will be already fans of yours and be familiar with Spank Rock. But like sometimes when I'm explaining to people that before spank rock there was no hipster blog rappers like the trickle down from what he did whether they're fans of him or not i don't know but from the odd futures to the theophilus to anything going on now like spank rock was like the first hipster rap and i don't mean hipster in the derogative way that we think like just somebody who was so was a rapper that did not field. yeah he was absolutely left field but also i mean they brought the show they brought the baltimore club they brought it out of the club. You know, yeah. I remember going to see him and like David Byrne was in the audience. You know what I yeah. mean? It was just like the energy on stage 
influenced my show hugely. Yeah. Like I was like, I want to feel like that yeah. on stage. It was incredible. And how did you actually hook up with Spank Rock Naeem? So it's funny because Roxy. Um, of course. Roxy Cottontail. Cottontail. I'm actually having an interview with her because she's doing something about that era. Me too. Really? Yes, yeah, that's right. And so she introduced us at one of her sway or something. Yeah. I don't know. And she's like, you two need to know each other. He lives in Philly, whatever. And so I was like, hey, and he's like, I love the Reese record. And I was like, really? Right. <laughs> you know, that was like, I mean, I really took it back. And I, you know, I don't know who knows that record and stuff. And so um, I still have They Say Vision by Reese, the song you wrote. Santi wrote an incredible record for this artist, Reese, How I Do. And there's a song called They Say Vision, which is on every workout playlist. It's like the one in the morning <laughs> where I really don't want to work out. And I need like one thing that's just going to like throw me up like right away. Yeah, the, the Reese thing, I think, for Heads and people who checked it out, was an important record. Well, anyway. it was early, and it was like, that was the first time I worked with Doc, too, mm -hmm. who, you know, then went on to do The weekend and, like, mm -hmm. is always doing something interesting and progressive. So Naeem was a fan of Reese. He yeah. came up to you. Yeah, and then, I don't know, I must have gone to see him and then just been mind-blown, and also... These shows were incredible. It's like, if you didn't see it, it's hard to imagine, but it was, like, the closest thing to, like... Like a weird, like James Brown meets Talking Heads meets just like it was just the most energetic thing ever. When he did James Brown at your party, do you remember that? And he was all over the tables. He jumped. It was a very fancy party for the opening of Top Shop in New York. And it was like this yeah. at Balthazar, the really fancy restaurant in New York. And Jimmy Fallon had done Englishman in New York. Jimmy Fallon just done Englishman in New York. Amazing. We were the house band. And I forgot that Spank Rock Naeem did. James Brown, but I remember him dancing and jumping from four top table to four top exactly. table, like <laughs> crazy. Amazing. And people were like kind of terrified. <laughs> and then like, is he going to land? Is my shit going to spill? But also, yeah, that was incredible. I remember that party for a different reason. When you asked me what it felt like in the beginning, that was like the first time that the paparazzi thing, I just had a conscious moment where I was like, I will never do this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause I got out of the car and they came over and then I, and I was just like, this is not me. It's not who I am. I'm so awkward in this. I hate it. Yeah. And I was like, never. So from then on, anytime I got, I would be like, nope, but it was that party. Really? <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know. No. I know you're not somebody who's ever like courted that kind of thing, but you were so embraced by the fashion world, just like basically because you did embody this new, as you said, like mixing of all these things, Alexander Wang, like all these houses, like you care about fashion. You're like an aesthetic. You think about that shit too. Did you dig that attention or was it like a bit of a mix of that being that and being a check? I mean, all that stuff is so funny because I love fashion and just like I love art and I love music and I will always. Right. But I learned very quickly. I mean, I was learning a lot of stuff during that time and just I don't like those scenes. I don't no. like the like, you're up, you're down, you're hot, you're not. You buy all this stuff and then the next season, throw it away. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'm a type of person, like I'll have stuff in my closet for 10, 15 years and I will wear it almost the whole time. Yeah. Or you put it away for 10 years, you bring it back. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so much stuff that I don't like about the fashion scene and it's changed so drastically since back then. Like back then, like Jeremy Scott was doing amazing stuff, but it was still so underground. Yes. And also, so was Alex, Alexander Wang. And then also there was like 
Castle de Bajac, who was... Jean-Charles Castle de Bajac, yes, yeah. He was, like, the forefather of what Jeremy was doing. Yeah. And, like, so I met him. And, like, I remember... Really I bright to, prints on sweaters and, like, bringing I mean, back just, the peanuts and the coochie stuff. Like, really... He was doing, like, sculpture on dresses with, yeah. like, 3D, like, hair coming out of the dress, stuffed animals, you know, all this cool stuff. Yeah. And he had been doing it for years. Yeah. So, yeah, fashion, it was really great meeting people and learning all about that. But it was also like the whole first row, this, that, this, that. Then you're not invited, then you are. You know what I mean? It was just like, okay. All that stuff kind of helped me to where I am now. I mean, I've been, I had been in the industry for years before all that stuff, just whether it's from working in, in the record labels or whatever. You see people go up and down, up and down. Yeah. Same it's with fashion. And it's just the perspective that you get when you're like, okay, now I can see this whole trajectory. So I see through the middle and I see where I want to be and I'm going to ride this one, you yeah. know? And what was it? What was where you wanted to be kind of? <laughs> well, that's a very I don't mean like question. it's a whole thing, but just even in that world, your place in that world. Well, clearly I wanted to be authentic to myself. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be true to myself. And that's actually way harder to do than it sounds, you know, especially as social media and all this stuff comes out. And then as a woman, you know, having to, it's kind of bullshit because it's like, I put it on myself, you know, there's lots of women who don't do all that stuff and yeah. just go out just like men with no makeup and no hair or whatever. And I love that, but I also am so into like all the different hairstyles and fun makeup and all this stuff. So it's like all this additional pressure that you put on yourself, like, then you get stuck. Like, I built this whole thing into my shows where I'm like, and then my costumes. And I love it. I love doing the whole thing with these crazy costumes. You had some big gowns, I remember, on some of those shows. I mean, I had so many different things. Like, I would change three times a show at least. And, you know, you make it hard on yourself. But also, it became, like, the art of the show because then I realized that the show is a whole different opportunity to create. Yeah. It's a whole physical manifestation of what you did in the music, but then you can make it visual and physical, you know? Yeah. So I spent so much time, but then that's pressure, you know? So it's finding the line. That's an ongoing process. How do you consistently stay true to who you want to be in your art, mm -hmm. despite whatever's going on around you and despite whatever the trends, whatever the pressure, and I think that's kind of been my saving grace because it's not like I've ever had like rocket ship stardom. I've never had like a major radio hit, right? you know, but yet all these years later, I still have like respect and relevance because I kind of don't follow you never, trends. And you never put a foot wrong. When you don't follow trends and you're really true to yourself and you have to have a pretty good inherent sense of kind of what's good. You can't just be like an idiot and just be like, I stay true to myself because then you just make like idiot <laughs> no, music. No, totally, I totally agree. But yeah, you can look back at everything and you have this long career. And it's crazy to think that like that record and the era we're talking about is almost 15 years ago now. And in that Fader article, I didn't realize there were so many quotes for me. Because really? I guess I was like kind of a little bit blowing up at the time. And I always joke on this podcast that I'm allowed to host the fader thing, but I've never been cool enough to be in the fader, <laughs> literally. <laughs> but I'm cool enough to be interviewed for Or maybe for an you were too you. big immediately. Don't you got to be a little don't bit. Don't even try it. It took me forever. <laughs> so I'm talking about this thing and I really remember it quite clearly. I was in your car and you were playing me stiff stuff. And there was like so much promise and you were like what do you think of this and 
I thought, like, as your friend is being slightly more commercial-minded, sure. I listened, I was like, these are really great. And from seeing the shows and knowing, like, what you could be, I think I was like, but maybe the song's going out there. And I said, if a label told you to, like, fix a couple songs or, like, fix a hook here and we would sign you and put this big money behind you, would you do it? And you're like, no, because, like, that's what I wrote. And I always thought that that was, A, ballsy, and I wish I had the nerve to do it. And it reminded me a little bit of... I remember when the first day that I worked with Amy Winehouse and she came in with the lyrics to Back to Black and they were really great, but me like an idiot, the chorus didn't rhyme. It was, we only said goodbye in words, I died a thousand times. And my producer like by the book thing goes off and goes, well, those should rhyme. And I was like, do you think maybe that could change that line just to rhyme? And she was like, she looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language because she was like, why it already came out like that. That is a true expression of my feelings. And I think more than any other artist that I know, I think that you've really stayed on that thing for sure. Yeah, I mean, I understand. More than any other artist I've worked with. I don't mean like in the whole world. world. you You know what I mean. No, I do. But I also understand like, this isn't even the point, but I actually understand how your brain works too. And I think that any like really good artist is going to have both sides of that brain and then so it's not like no it's like well could I and it still makes sense and have the thing the really funny thing is that my A&R at Atlantic was the person who told me no when I went out on my own he was like this will never work when you went out on your own with what when I went out shopping my demo oh but you got signed to Atlantic because I got upstreamed, okay. having nothing to oh, do with it. Oh, from downtown. So the yes. go- right. And then I got the A&R who told me no. And later I was like, you know, you told me no. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I was wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I got it from the other side. So some of my other friends who were way more like, you know, listen to like less pop stuff. They're like, this is really poppy. Right. And then About I About what stuff? The electronic stuff or LES, the rocky stuff? Okay. You know, stuff like that. And I was like, hmm. And I felt bad yeah. about it. But then I was like, you know what? I like pop and yeah. I like that it can be pop too. Cause like Devo, which I always say is one of my favorite bands. I have a lot of favorite bands, but. You say that in the I article actually, that Devo is your favorite band, which makes sense to me. But actually in all years of working together and being friends, I didn't know that. Really? Um, yeah. Well, the thing about them is they make pop songs. Like yeah. their songs are so poppy, oh, yeah. but yeah. then they just tweak them so that they're so off kilter and so strange that you kind of miss that they're pop songs. It's kind of like a blessing and a curse because I think I have that same thing where I take a pop song and I like take the pop out of it, even yeah. though it's a pop song. Yeah. You know? But you have the voice and you have hooks and you don't know how to sell out, I don't think. I don't think you have that part in your brain no, that would know how to like fix it to cater for people. I just think that ruins the whole point of what I do. And if I had to do that, then I would do something else. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about social media. <laughs> like, I'm like, if I have to do that to be a musician, then I quit. Like, yeah. I suck at social media. And it's become such a huge part of being a successful musician. And I'm like, well, I'll probably just keep doing music and finding something else to do for money then because I can't do social media yeah. like that. I'm so bad at it. I, I just hate don't it. like it. It's not, it does not resonate with who I am. I just find myself sometimes like waking up, like either stressed about like, what am I going to post today? Or like, oh Ugh. no, the ex person had their record come out yesterday and forgot to post and I probably got to upgrade it from a story to a grid so they're not (laughs) angry or like it's somebody's birthday and I'm really bad at it too like I'm the only person who's like seems to be slowly 
losing followers. Like I look at like Diplo <laughs> just going from like two million to three to four oh to five God. million. And I'm like, looked at my followers. Actually this morning I was like, how did I drop down from 898,000 to 897? Like, <laughs> did they do a call of bots? I don't or? know, but I just feel like, you know, with all that I want to do in the world, I don't want to be looking at my phone worried about followers, you know? What do you post when you have to, or do you just let somebody handle it? Is it just promotional only? Well, actually, during this past pandemic year, I didn't post anything almost. Yeah. I, I literally was like, I refuse to do this this year. This is, this is not where I want to focus yeah. my energy. And there's so many things going on. Whether it was like trying to save myself from drowning because mm -hmm. I was deep in with like motherhood you know I had two-year-old twins just as we hit the pandemic you know with no help coming in the house and yes. trying to I made a record and your oldest who's eight seven seven just turned seven yeah so I mean it was just it was a lot just trying to keep afloat and then also just do functional stuff in my house it's all I could do you know and Felt like I was like slowly dying, you know, in like this role of just motherhood. Yeah. That's not me. Like, yes, I am many things and mother is one of them. But like, I can't just be like cleaning and cooking and like doing laundry right. and wiping butts. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I just can't do that all the time. 24-7. I was like, seriously, like suffocating. Yeah. And so I just I broke out and I the house looked insane and I made a record. Yeah. You know, and I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. But I'm certainly not doing social media. And then when the world started going crazy and it was like, you know, the protests and the riots and the fires and, this, you know, I actually had to pull myself off of it all. No news, no nothing, because I'm like a total empath. And it's actually not helpful to me if I get as down as I'll get from taking. So I had to like protective shield myself yeah. and then just create. Yeah. Because creating, you're like building a rope or a bridge to pull you and whoever else out. Yes. But if I'm just gonna like take it all in too much, I won't even be able to make anything, yeah. you know? Santi and I are alike in that we came up in the era before social media. The frequent posting isn't particularly innate to us or often even very interesting. I do have a lot of admiration for our mutual friends who have made the transition smoothly. People like Diplo and Questlove. You know, Diplo with his brand of humor, fun tour pics, and a lot of smoking hot dad pics. He's turned that into instant TikTok gold. And Questlove, statesman, ambassador of all things musical, cultural, political, plus his great appreciation posts. I mean, they have their own brand. But you have to be particularly good at it and you have to want it because it takes a lot of time. And if you look like you're trying too hard or you want it real bad, Lord help you because it is some cringy shit. I still shudder when I think of the three weeks I tried to be relevant on TikTok. And Santi's way more visually iconic than me. She has a distinct style, a worldview. It would be very easy for her to turn that into some kind of great Insta brand, but it just doesn't interest her whatsoever. It seems to be even a little depressing to her. I hate to sound like that old guy, but surfing TikTok for more than five minutes kind of makes me depressed too. But I also know it's not for me. There are artists like Frank Ocean and Kendrick whose mystique is actually quite refreshing. What you know about them, you know from the music. And your imagination is free to run wild and fill in the blanks on the rest. We've all sat with a friend dissecting the imagined subject matter of a song. I mean, if Carly Simon was on social media in the 70s, I don't think we'd still be trying to guess who You're So Vain was about. We'd know it from looking at her Insta stories. There's certainly something refreshing about not knowing everything about an artist you admire. 
but also few artists have the courage to step out of that spotlight. Santi, however, has never felt the need or desire to play any part of a game which doesn't feel genuine to her. And how was the music that you made? This is for your record that you're kind of finishing up right now. Yeah, yeah, I'm mixing. I, I love it. It's called Spirituals, the record. Yeah. And it's in no way traditional spirituals. <laughs> but it was my spirituals. Yeah. It was my way through. And I'm really excited about it. Is it once again a mixture of sort of like all those influences and stuff? Or yeah. because you're making the pandemic, were you more like beat focused? Because that was a kind of stuff no, or everything? It, no, it's everything. Yeah. There's a lot of beats. I, I definitely made it in a room by myself, like virtually with everyone, which was hard and also very ice. I ended up being in Canada for five months in a cabin in the woods, really by myself, which was interesting because then the whole nature thing really opened up and became another element that found its way into the music. Is it like a bit of a peaceful record or uplifting record? No, it's just all over the place. Okay. <laughs> It's got True some punk, form. it's got some punk, it's got some rap, it's like it's got everything. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I was just meant because you said that you were kind of shunning the, the horrific and the more negative aspects of what was going on in the outside world to just make sure that you kept it's all the in the music, right? I was keeping it a little bit at bay, yeah, so that I could create within it rather than just be so down I couldn't do anything. But it's all in the music. The last time that I saw you live, we were doing a festival together in San Francisco, this really cool festival just outside. And oh, yeah, yeah. I was doing a show with Diplo at Silk City, and you were doing the live show. I mean, your live shows are phenomenal, and the dancers you have with you and the choreo and everything. Are you looking forward to going back to live? Do you still like live? <laughs> I love live performing, but I don't love live performing five days a week for a long time straight. Yeah. But, of course, not being able to travel. I love the idea of being able to, to go out and do shows. And I love coming up with the show, yeah. you know, as much pressure as it is. And, but especially for this one, because I've already got some, like, just, oh, I just... You, you some see themes are easier than yeah. others. And this one I really see, and I'm, I'm working on some really great art ideas. Like, actually, this morning I had a call about it. And so, yeah, I, I'm excited to take it out. You know, touring has been different now that I have like kids and stuff. I try to do like only three weeks at a time and just kind of, but I have a lot of places to get to now because I haven't been, like I haven't been to Mexico in years. Yeah. I haven't been, I haven't been to London. I had to pull out of Glastonbury last time that I was supposed to do it. And you know, I haven't been there in like four years, five. I remember it was so much fun because, you know, in the brief minute that like, version my record was blowing up just before your thing exploded you know just before this fader cover story and you would come and do festivals with us and that was so much fun and i always remember like you definitely weren't one for like the grotty like bus life and all these boys and like maybe some definitely some drinking maybe some drugs like there was thing like you just weren't like no. in the mood to get turned like that but i always just remember being so like gracious for you showing up and always like having this fear in the back of my head, like this is definitely the last one she's going to do. Like she's definitely not going to come. I think there was like one festival even where I'm not going to, I'm not angry about this, but maybe it was Coachella. I'm not even angry. I mean, literally. I'm not even like, angry. I'm not angry. I, I just mean like I'm saying it's definitely as a joke. It's not a passive aggressive joke uh -huh. that I think you told me that you weren't 
able to perform because you weren't getting until the morning and I ran into you at like the juice stand. <laughs> I was like, Cause I wasn't getting wet to the morning. You weren't playing till the next day. And you're like, I just don't think I'm going to be there in time for your show on Saturday. I think you were playing Sunday. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, do you want to still come? Like the band, that was the song you could just hop up. But I think honestly, I could never be mad at you because you did so many of those early shows with us in the radio one big weekend. And it was like you, Lily Allen, Daniel Merriweather, were, were you at any of the ones where Amy, the couple where Amy got yeah, up? I think she, yeah, I think there was a couple where she came. It was a lot of people. You know, Pretty Green was like, I would go so far as to maybe say it might be the only song she liked on my album version, the song that you did, because I think Amy, even though maybe genre-wise you guys were quite different, she was just like very cool and cool is like regardless of, of genre as we know and in the same way you are there's some people that just have an instinct for like what is cool and i don't mean it's like gauging like what other people might think is cool it's just like you just can't put a fucking it's just unquotable like and you and her both had that and so it makes sense that like pretty green was like her favorite song on it because like you just hear it and it just fucking sounds cool because of your voice and all that shit i remember recording that with you um, in your studio in New York and just like moving all around the room screaming and you're like, like double Dutch bus. And I was like, okay. Right. And so I was doing like a billion different voices. Yeah. That was really fun. I like, I, I like that song. I um, didn't know how to do a gang vocal. So I was like, well, how can we make it sound like a group? I'll just keep asking you to move to different places in the room because I maybe do that all the time. Spatially that no, will, it, that totally does it, it change. Work? Yeah, it totally changes or just even just a little bit from That's the mic, cool. but changing your voice each time slightly. You're so good at changing your voice. You really are like a master of that. Like you just can make. I've been all doing these a little bit of uh, of animation voiceovers, just a little bit. I just. Yeah. But the cool thing is, the ones I've been doing involve like comedy singing, which is like the funnest thing. And you're just like yelling at people, and then you're like, oh, I'm gone, and then you're like, oh. or, or I had to be this um, I'm on this one called Centaur World. Okay. And is this Adult Swim or like a cartoons for kids or cartoons for? I think it's for I think it's for like teenager growing okay. up. This one, but I'm like the mole tar judge, so I'm like a mole but a tar. Like so, everybody's a centaur. Yeah, and I am like sexy, like disgusting, but not sexy at all. It's so fun because it's all about your voice and being able to change and do all this fun stuff with your voice. And I think that's always been something that. Because I've never, I've never thought of myself as a singer, really. Really? Dina, no. That's crazy to me. Because I know what you mean. You're not, like, going to get up and probably sing the national anthem at the playoffs. But, like, I, you definitely are singing. You have, like, great pitch. You have, like, really unique tone. But, but it's sure, just more about, it. like, being an instrument player of your voice. Yeah. Because I can't play any other instruments very well at yeah. all. I can write on any instrument, but I'm terrible at playing instruments. But I can play my voice. Yeah. And that's kind of it. You know, I've taken a little bit of vocal lessons over the years just to try to, like, figure out how to retain my voice on tour yeah. and stuff like that. But I don't know how to do all kinds of stuff. But it's just what I do know how to do is, like, make cool, funny sounds with my voice and, yeah. you know, and, and on demand, yeah. you know. But it's funny because when you went in on the first time to do the creator switch, you kind of like there's something that probably has grown in the confidence a little bit of, like, Doing that a few times, everyone going like, that's the shit. Because you probably like maybe the way you told that story, you weren't quite ready. But like then you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, and if I do a little funny voice on this one, shove it, then Jay-Z and Kanye get to sample it. Are you talking about in that little bit in the beginning of Creator, what we did at the very end where it's like, <laughs> yeah. like that? I've always done little squeaks as I'm, especially from Stiff, I think I started doing that. Probably like influenced by like 
missing persons. <laughs> right. And it just became a thing I couldn't stop doing. It just became like something. And he probably heard me doing that. And he's like, do some cool thing. And I remember he said, do some, this made no sense. He goes, do some like Kate Bush sound in the beginning. And that's what I did. <laughs> it made no sense. And then it's also completely like not in pitch or anything and like cracking. And he's like, that's great. And he used it in the beginning of Creator. And it's so funny because every time I hear it, I'm like cringing because it's like, I know I could like do it right, you know? Yeah. But it's kind of awesome that it's so crazy. Also, when you said it like that, it made me think of like, do you remember that classic dance hall song, Koof? Yes. Again, yes. again, Koof. Koof again. <laughs> like well, it see, has all. You know, Mark, those are like my hugest influences, right? right? Like all that stuff, Sister Nancy, Sister Carol. I forget who that is, but I've actually like. Surely something, isn't it, yeah. Koof? I remember like talking about it on social media and her relative hit me up and was like, you know, that's my aunt. She's no like, way. Yeah, that song is the, that's that's one of the amazing. best. That's amazing, yeah. But I just had a song come out that I did with you, Roy. I know, I saw, and he's kind of really sadly passed away earlier this year. And you right were just, before. Yeah. I know. Did you make it before he passed away? or was I this? did, yeah, oh, but wow. I didn't meet him. I wasn't in okay. the studio with him, unfortunately. I did it, I think, in L.A. And, but, I mean, it was just amazing to just be able to, to be on a track with him. Yeah. And He's like one of the most like kind of influential, like, Toaster MCs, like, I mean, he right? kind of like helped start rap music. Like, wow. I mean, toast Jamaican toasting was yeah. like pre-rap, you yeah. know, and it's the idea of being the MC, but making that a rhythmic delivery interaction, and you know, over records. Yeah, I mean, what were some of his super kind of iconic recordings or stuff that people should check out? Is there one? Just Google you, Roy, everybody. And what's the name of the song you guys did? together man next door which have been one of my favorite songs because yeah. there was i think i like the dennis brown version yeah hi birds <laughs> but i just you know i knew that song like so much with all the harmonies and everything so when they're like you want to sing i was like oh my god yes but anyway in that song i did this one like oh, or something and yeah. they just sampled it and did it over and over yeah but that's totally like those women are my heroes yeah you know we're outside recording this in COVID safe kind of environment. So we do have some friends. Do you, um, do you think that these birds like reggae? No. Do you think that, um, I think they just heard that coo -coo -coo, and then they yeah. were like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, totally. They heard that. They heard that you toasting and they're like, <laughs> you know, growing up in Philly, I know you listen to a lot of hip hop and you've talked about like, what was the thing, the school dance where you wrote the rap where you told me like you once did for me, I'm not going to make you do it here, like your first ever verse. And it was like had this kind of amazing like sort of. No, I didn't perform one of my raps at a school dance. I did many things at school. You had a verse that you spit for me one time that definitely sounded like it was written in like peak high school. Oh, was it that was the last party? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. can't believe these birds are just jumping off like Because we started doing the toasting. Um, okay, so tell me about the last party. I don't know. I had this party, and I used to, I'm telling you, I used to write raps. Like, that's how I started writing songs. I used to write raps. My first song I think I wrote when I was nine after watching one of the break-ins or, like, Beat Street or something, yeah. and it was, like, it was called City Streets because yeah. I always wanted to talk about people, the culture, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was like, city streets, city streets, people need our help out there and no one's there to listen. <laughs> when you were nine? Yeah. That's really good. That's I mean, especially of the time, that is like a, that I is know. a hit. But anyway, I had a billion raps. I used to write raps. I used to write raps and poems all the time throughout my teenage yeah. years. 
I don't know if I remember anymore. Do you want me to try? I mean, I do love it. It was hot fire when you spit it to me. Let's see. I just remember it went that, 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 that was. Oh, yeah, here it goes. It comes back. It, comes. Okay. it all started the week of my birthday. Called some friends to come over and stay for a while. Only people with style, because my parents were home. Didn't want it to be wild. So I went to school, tried to keep it a secret, despite my efforts. Everyone seemed to hear it. And it's like, totally didn't match here. It goes, then the night finally came, and I won't be the same, because that night is the night I got the fame of my name, which remains to be widely known. All these people called me up on the phone to tell me that they were still coming. But I didn't know anyone by the name of Chris Money. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last party. <laughs> wow. So it was based on true experience, but also had this like kind of like. Mark, you might have to delete this. Dana Dane, <laughs> like Dana Dane, Nightmare on My Street meets like a kind of like uh, parents just don't understand. Totally. It, and th actually, both those rappers are from Philly. So that's yeah, kind that of totally that's kind of weird. So, I mean, obviously, you're not aware of it when you're like 10 or 11. But was there a feeling that like Philly that there's hip hop happening? Obviously, you know, like you're not in New York. Like, no, Philly was fucking amazing and right. like so it was when I was 13 in 1988 yeah. was okay. the year it was like one of the most exciting years of my life honestly because the fly girl thing was like off the hook okay in Philly so all the girls had like asymmetrical haircuts and gold and leather trench coats and you know this was the era of like salt and pepper and NC mm -hmm. light and eight ball jackets yeah and, and starter jackets yeah. and like and so I was at an all-girls private school all-white private school and then started seeing wow. all this. I worked downtown that summer. I was 12 for my dad at his like law office. And I saw all these people and I was like, oh, I want to be that. So that next year in the beginning of eighth grade, I went to school with my haircut, my big Santi gold plate earrings, my leather trench, which I got illegally from like <laughs> participating in like, I was in like, you know, the pyramid scam. Where you like, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. got some money. Yeah. <laughs> and I bought myself all this stuff. And I went back to school and I talked different. And everybody was like, Santi, is that you? And I was like, yeah, I'm saying I just went, you know, I went real quick and, you know. <laughs> and I left after that year. I was just like, I went to public school for a year because I was just like, you know, I was wanting more yeah. than, I mean, yeah. it was whack. I mean, also at that time, that was when you start liking boys and the boys were like, I would like Santi, but she's black. You know what I mean? It was right. like, it was just. I, yeah. You know, why? So after ninth grade, you kind of switched schools? Well, I went, to, I went to public school for one year, and then I ended up going to Quaker school. Okay. So Germantown Friends after that. As a New York DJ in the early 90s, it was easy to feel like the sun rose and set in the East. We were the seeming hub of the music universe. Biggie, Nas, Wu-Tang, even D'Angelo and Erica had made it their home. But then Philly happened in a big way. I was always so fascinated with what was going on in Philadelphia at that time. The roots, the neo-soul movement that followed, Jill Scott, music soul child, Bilal. I remember driving to Philly for the first time to record strings with Larry Gold, the go-to arranger for everyone from Justin Timberlake to the OJs. I actually felt stupid when I hit the turnpike and realized it was only 90 minutes from my apartment. A place whose music scene seemed so exotic to me was less than 100 miles away. I got to Larry Gold's studio and I found out it was also where The Roots recorded and the rapper Dice Raw had just been in the night before. I asked 100 questions about it. I found it all so exciting. During breaks in recording, I would stop in and visit Santi in her loft apartment around the corner and she told me that she had a friend Wes, aka Diplo, who lived down the street. She told me about Spankrock. Again, all this felt so thrilling. The fact all this cool shit was happening, but it wasn't New York, made it seem all the more interesting. 
I'm always so fascinated with scenes and how they pop up. Obviously, this is nothing new. Certainly more jazz greats came from the Midwest than New York. Seattle, Liverpool, all these cities have created as much great music as a London or LA, certainly pound for pound. Philly has been legendary from the beginning. Gamble and Huff, Todd Rundgren, LaBelle, Hall and Oates. Daryl Hall once told me it's the toughness of the city, the slight chip that you're not from New York, the need to make it and the chance to take in all these disparate influences and form your own thing. And with all her styles and this incredible new sound, Santi definitely formed her own thing in a way that might not have happened had she come from anywhere else. The other thing you talk about in the Fader thing, which I didn't even know in all our years of talking about everything, you had a stint as an assistant A&R at Epic and you brought in most Def, now Yassine Bey, to be signed and they were like, nah, thanks. Yeah, I brought in a lot of things and they were like, nah, thanks. Um, but yeah, I brought his demo, it was really good. What was on the demo? Anything that kind of ended up being... <sighs> Some of those records? I don't remember. I remember there was a song, Got, that didn't end up because it was his most poppy thing, and I loved it. And I was yeah. trying to—I was you. I was trying to push him to do yeah. this. I was like, everyone will love this song. And he's like, no. I remember the, his first group on Payday, UTD, Urban Thermodynamics, yeah. and I loved that. They had this record called My Kung Fu that I remember really loving as well. So you brought in most to the powers that be. I did. And even with Reese, that's why I signed Reese, because I ended up being uh, A&R assistant, but I left because by the time it got to the point where I, I had done the Reese demo and I started writing the songs myself because I couldn't, I wanted it to be different. And everybody I tried to get to write songs, I was getting the same thing. And I was like, but I want this to be something different. So I was like, well, I'll just write it. And that was the first time I ever wrote, wow. wrote songs other than my little raps. Yeah. And, and you hooked up with Doc, who we said went up. on to, you know, obviously do the weekend yeah. the early stuff. And yeah, brilliant and producer. at that point he had only done Astero, which right. I liked. And I brought it into Epic and they were like, this is great. Maybe we could put her in Groove Theory. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Just, and I was like, that's totally that's not chalk it. chalk and cheese, as the yeah. English say. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, everything was about, like, <laughs> Diddy at the time. Yeah. And signing anybody who had anything to do with him. And, like, you know, it was interesting. It was the Black Music Department, which they don't call it that anymore. But it was interesting because the Black Music Department was, like, you know, anything that was very specifically rap or R&B and anything that was Black that was not, that was huge, like Michael Jackson, Sade, they were pop. Okay. So it was interesting. It was like, you know, it was so unfair and so yeah. crazy. And also anything that I brought that didn't fit into rap and R&B, they were like, oh, Santa, you're so good. I remember I brought in Pony, Genuine Pony. I, Shut no, up. No, 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 no. It was already out. Okay. But I brought it in because I had spent a summer in London and they were, you know, um, what do they call it? Was it Jungle? Was that what it oh, was yeah, called? Oh, yeah, there's Jungle and there was two-stepping that was at the different tempos, right? But back the then, right. Jungle, when it was only over Raga and R&B at yeah, the time. Yeah, So it was like this amazing music that none of us had ever heard. Now yeah. Jungle means like whatever else. Yeah. But at the time, it was like, this was in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Jungle was like people doing crazy beat mixes over escape yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. yeah and it was like amazing and so i was trying to tell them about it and i was like we need to do this we need to do this and then pony came out oh and they did it and they did it yeah. and i was like look yeah and, and he was like oh i guess you did tell me you know and yeah. i was just like man but it got to the point where 
I would come in the big Sony building. I would just immediately feel sick to my stomach every day. Yeah. And I was like, this is not for me. And I left. Then I went and I did the Reese record, which, you know, was hard because I was really, I had a vision in my head and to have it go through somebody else's mouth and somebody else. I didn't want to be an artist. You couldn't even pay me to be an artist mm -hmm. at that time. But I was so connected to the art. And when it wasn't coming out the way that I wanted, after that, I was like, well. I better do it. Yeah. <laughs> Reese was, was a great, not to take anything away from Reese, I don't know her that well, but I hear you so much now when I listen to They Say Vision. I can hear you in it almost as if like your ghost vocal is in there and with <clears throat> Golden Boys. So she was a great vehicle, but you're saying sometimes you guys would get into artistic differences over this I mean, it song. just, you know, between her and Doc, anyway, it was like way more R&B that I wanted to be. It just, it, you know, it wasn't me. Yeah. And it had to feel like her because she was singing it. And when I listened to that record, I mean, I'm like this anyway. When I listen to old stuff, I cringe a lot anyway. Yeah. But not with Santi Gold, like not yeah. with the first record, but like whether it's like pictures of me or anything, like I'm very like look back cringe. Yeah. But I definitely do that when I hear that record because it was like, I mean, it was such a push and pull of trying to get somewhere that I never really got to, you know? You say something funny in that Fader article as well. You're kind of like, I had to get out of there because I realized that I needed to be a business lady. Like you said business lady, <laughs> like I imagine Tina Fey saying it, like I'm a business lady. So you saying you kind of like hinted at the things, yeah, didn't. I mean, you know, you learn a lot. I was like 21 when I was working yeah. on stuff. So you learn, I mean, a lot about relationships and learn about boundaries and contracts and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've had so much years in perspective of being a woman working in this business with loads of men and, and how to navigate that. I mean, so many times when people come in and try to talk to you a certain way. And I'm funny because I come across a little bit like, I don't want to say ditzy, but a little bit tuned out sometimes. Right. And I'll be like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Right. And then like my dancers and my bandmates who know me so, so well in so many different ways they've got two things they say one is my dancers say i have truth Tourette's. okay you do i'm gonna remind you of something that you said to me very right after this let me remember that oh no okay but yeah i do right so it's like if i think it and it's true just say it and that's something i get from my old southern upbringing my family where you know you could also take the time to think of a way that it would be well received yeah i never learned it's, that yeah. you know I'm, I'm working on that now and the other thing is my band, they call me the cheetah. And sometimes they just go, like if somebody comes in and they don't know me and they start and like somebody's about to jump in, they'll be like, let the cheetah run. Yeah. Like, Cause I'll, I'll like snap off. But it's a very utilitarian, you know, it's not gonna come out only when it's needed. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But I learned that as a woman in this business, it's like you take, 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 and then you're like, hold up you know yeah. and you just cut it really fast and let people know who you really are mm -hmm. because it's so interesting the things that you run up against as a woman in the music industry mm -hmm. especially a woman not doing the typical like style and, and music yeah. that, that women like to do in this industry the truth Tourette's thing just gave me this I remember this and I think that you always had big trucks I loved mm -hmm. it when you would come by and pick me up whether it was in the studio or whatever even before you kind of hit it you would always have like a Yukon or a Denali or something crazy and, and Land uh, Rover Land Rover and I remember playing you. I had the demos of version, I think, the rest of the songs in your car. I played it. Oh, no. And you kind of just gave me a polite smile. And I knew it wasn't really your type of music. And I, so I wasn't taking anything too hard. But you're like, 
it's like a, it's, I don't really get all the horns. It's like a little like elevator. Because <laughs> there were some songs on there that were like just instrumental, like, and it's not like you're not a fan of jazz because there's like a very different thing. Like jazz can be avant-garde and cool and amazing. I listened back, don't worry, and cringed at quite a few of those things. But yeah, I just remember you have truth threats. And I even remember probably never saying this out loud but working on my next record record collection oh, no. with somebody to love me and bang 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 and songs of spank rock and being like I, I remember there was like a tiny compartment in my brain that was thinking like i'm gonna make something that santi and naeem are gonna have to say that they like this time and it's terrible to be driven by that kind of thing but sometimes it can also be a, a good thing when like you're no it's good it's good because we all have that and we all have listen mark you have something that we don't have, right? It's like, you've got this like pop ear that's so like, you're like, okay, I know what to do. Do, 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 do. And it's like, pop it. You know what I mean? Right. I Not can't, for a couple of years, but thank you. <laughs> shut up. But I can't do that. You know, my ears don't work like that. And when I hear something, sometimes it sounds like a pop hit. I want to change it. Yeah. I'm like, uh-uh, you yeah. know, and it's not yeah. because I'm like, it's a pop hit, but there is something that I don't like yeah. about, you know, it's it's almost like too straightforward. Yeah. I'm like, it's not interesting enough, you know, whatever. But also back on the horns thing, I do have a thing with horns though, mm -hmm. like in brassy things, symbols. Yeah. And I'm like really funny about them. But when we went on tour and you had the horn section, mm -hmm. I loved it. Oh, you did? I loved oh, it. Cool. I was amazed. And when horns are done right, yeah, they're so powerful and so interesting. Like when did you see the Fela Broadway oh, the show? Oh, was incredible. Yeah, yeah, and the horn section. I, you know, I have horns on several of my records, yeah. and I had like them come in yeah. and play. But I always have to like take all the bright out and yeah. like make them sound almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like a thing. Yeah, Spodia, Delicious, or however you said, Outcast. Like there's your yeah. records. There's horns. Of course, horns can be cool. They were Miles Davis is the birth of the cool. Like I was also like so green. And you know when you just discover a new color, like musically, you just like throw it over everything. Like it's a little gaudy. But we could all look back over our records yeah. and do this. <laughs> I also remember when you said the thing coming and playing with us and enjoying the horns. I remember you coming to that show that we did with the BBC concert orchestra at the yeah. Roundhouse. And you did that duet with Terry Hall of Our Lips Are Sealed. And that was so cool. I Jeez. remember that, but I don't remember the song. Well, Terry Hall... No, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah. He, but I don't remember singing it. Because he wrote it originally with Jane Wheedlin, I guess, from the Go-Go's. And it was like their thing when they had a little tryst when the Go-Go's and the specials or they went on tour together in America. And, and I guess it's more known as the Go-Go's song. But yeah, so I guess I wanted somebody... I met Terry Hall. He was like a hero and he's like almost like an English national treasure. And I was like, yeah, maybe Santi will want to sing that song. It came out good? Yeah, yeah. I totally remember. I have a visual of that day. Yeah. But I don't remember what the song sounded like. Yeah. I must have learned it really fast. Yeah. I get really um, nervous about singing songs that aren't mine. Yeah. That I have to learn really fast because I, I mess up. And so I don't get to actually perform them good. So then I have a block and then I don't remember. Like I did um, the David Byrne tribute at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And I got to do like my favorite song, but I didn't take enough time to like learn it. Like I thought I knew it. Yeah, of course. Because I, you know, I knew it from yeah. being like lit. I can sing I it bought, in the car. I bought like the Columbia tape for a penny, yeah. you know. So I was like, oh yeah, I know the song. But then there were so many lyrics and there were so many verses. Oh fuck yeah! yeah. And I was like, I don't know these. So I literally had like a day 
what happens is if I have to think on stage, I go blank. It happens to oh, me yeah. with my own songs. Yeah. So the whole performance, I literally was like pointing my finger in the air. <laughs> I was like, because I was, and then they had, they were like, don't worry, we have a teleprompter. I can't perform with a teleprompter because yeah. then you're just reading. You're not yeah. like, oh, I felt like I just bombed it so bad. And I was so mad because I love David Byrne. He's like one of my favorites. He, he loves you. He's one of the first people I interviewed for this. And I was, and you and I had just spoken the night before and FaceTime from Canada. And I was like, oh, I was just uh, with Santi Gold. She says, hi. And he's like, I love Santiago. Like, he really loves you. Like, well, he, you can mutual. see. I did a little performance, like a really impromptu thing when I was working with Lady Gaga on her album. And she was doing a show, like a big Met Ball thing, an after party. And we performed. We're like, what's a simple song we can just perform with, like, a boombox? Like, and stop making sense. Just hit play on the beat and then just play on top. And we did burning down the house and the same thing like she had to like swallow cram those lyrics and i swear because there's a lot there's so many lyrics and you don't realize how and then i swear i can't tell because she's just such a pro and she kills the performance but i feel like there are a couple times she's like backing up the mic to look down at the guitar yeah. like, is that because like maybe just the last word maybe just the last word but she she's fucking that was so much fun i mean that's just one of the greatest songs ever. it's one of the greatest songs and i remember also there was some conga drummers and i like went for a conga drum I was like yeah. <laughs> it was like really wow <laughs> But it was amazing. I mean, he's amazing. It was such a great event. At the end of that show, this is a crazy thing. Once again, you know, not cool enough to be in the show, but cool enough to be covered at the end. I think they ended with Uptown Funk. He led a marching band through Carnegie Hall, like all behind him did. on that tribute show. He did. Yeah. Because I was going to say he walked around with a marching band, but he I didn't remember around, it was yeah, Uptown Funk. Bend and bend and bend That's amazing. What you said in the very beginning of this was that the thing that enabled you to make your first album and it's kind of not really care you're like you know what probably no one's gonna listen to this anyway except probably some like kind of niche people in england so i'm just gonna make whatever the fuck i want and that that is the power of surrender in some way i mean my first success really was with version that album because i was like no one's gonna listen to this anyway so i might as well kind of make the elevator jazz that i like and no but and and that's what happened i was like i i want to make these covers that i can play in my dj sets and, and fuck it so but i think that's it i think when we put too much on stuff we push it away yeah and i think when we just relax into our lives in general and like and stop trying to like drive so much it's when kind of like magical stuff happens that's not really expected like, yeah. even me having twins, like, I really wanted twins. You did? I did. And I didn't even, like, say it that much. Like, yeah. I just, because I, I was really late having kids, and I was like, what if I could just have a boy and a girl? Seriously. Yeah. Like, thought that, right? But I was like, I'm not doing all that stuff that people do, you know? Yeah. And I literally said it to my doctor as a joke. I was yeah. like, maybe I should just blah, 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 blah. And she's hey. like, she had twins. She was like, you don't want that, man. It's like <laughs> crazy. And I moved to LA, I called her, I was like, guess what? She's like, no, you know? Wow. But it's like, it's intention. Yeah. But then it's like, no weight on it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was fucking awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Santi. So there you have it. Me and one of my best friends, Santi White, talking all things getting deep with some help from the birds take me out with the fader a special fader thank you to our grammy and oscar award-winning host mark ronson 
Please visit thefader.com slash podcast to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Executive producers Rob Stone and John Cohen. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with BYT.NYC. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Berry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week. <laughs>